Welcome to the Ether Review. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. The Ether Review is a podcast about the applications of blockchain technology, from big business to governments to the software that powers our cars. This new iteration of the internet affects every part of our lives. By speaking to the people who work in this emerging field, we aim to decrypt this new technology and distribute the future that is already here. The Ether Review is sponsored by Consensus Systems, a blockchain venture production studio that uses Ethereum technology to build decentralized applications. To find out more, visit consensus.net. That's C-O-N-S-E-N-S-Y-S dot net. Or for cutting-edge commentary on the blockchain and decentralization space, check out consensusmedia.net. Today on the Ether Review, I'm joined by Claire Vival, James Duchenne, Alex Sims, Hannah Glass, and Peter Van Valkenburg to discuss regulatory sandboxes and other approaches being tried around the world to create a safe environment in which blockchain businesses can operate. So to begin with, let's start with yourself, Claire. I'm a financial services specialist lawyer in Australia. The Fold Legal is a boutique firm specialising in various forms of financial services regulation and licensing. Hi, everyone. My name is James Duchenne, the managing partner of Sutton Stone. We're venture builders, which basically means we're in the business of building businesses. And we do business in Asia, in Africa, as well as the United States. I got into Bitcoin and blockchain in 2013. Uh, we've been involved with several ventures. And lately, we're trying to find out with the Mauritian government as well, the proper regulatory pathway for this new thing called the ICO. I'm Alex Sims. Um, I'm an academic at the University of Auckland and I've got a project funded by the Law Foundation on the legal regulation of cryptocurrencies. Hi everyone, my name's Hannah Glass. I'm a solicitor at King & Wood Mallisons, which is an Asian-based law firm. I specialise in blockchain technology and fintech with a sort of traditional practice in more financial services and derivatives. In this space, I've actually had some involvement in helping with the regulatory sandbox, working with Claire on behalf of FinTech Australia. Fantastic. And that leaves you, Peter. So I'm Peter Van Valkenburg. I'm the director of research at Coin Center. Coin Center is an independent nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., focused on the public policy implications of the emergence of open blockchain networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum. In some ways, I'm an American representative on this call. We have no sandbox and won't have one anytime soon. So eager to learn <laughs> what things are like on the other side of the pond or ponds. Let's actually start this by defining the term regulatory sandbox, because I know that a lot of listeners won't really have any idea what that means. And certainly I'm not clear about it. The concept of a regulatory sandbox, it is a place where startup businesses at a point where they need to test their concept in the market would have a safe space to do so without necessarily having to undergo all of the regulatory hurdles of applying for a licence. The rationale for it is, number one, we need to encourage entrepreneurship and particularly we need to encourage people who are looking at other ways of delivering financial services more quickly and efficiently, and this is one way to do it. The second is that often a startup business won't necessarily know what business they're in until they test their model. And when I say test, I don't mean full commercial testing. The concept of enabling them to test 
at least an initial level, is to enable them also to define what regulatory authorisations they might require, having had an opportunity to test the manner in which their service delivery goes to market. So they're the two key reasons for a sandbox. So I know you've had some experience with this as well, James. Yeah, sure. I think from the merchant perspective, it's very similar. What we've done is we've looked at Australia, Singapore, and the other jurisdictions that have applied the sandbox licensing over a period of time. And what we found was where there exists no legal framework and the project is of an innovative value, that basically requires some sort of finesse and probably an easier path to commercialization. And that's why Mauritius provided the regulatory sandbox licensing scheme last year. So essentially the the scheme basically looked at three major areas. Where are the pain points from the legislative angle, from the commercialization angle, as well as from the funding angle, because all three of these are actually required in order to have successful ventures out there. The second purpose of the sandbox is to allow, I suppose, the, the legislative bodies to actually understand and group together similar type of activities so that it can develop over the coming years a proper regulatory framework that facilitates that sort of innovation. Oh yes, and and those comments would apply equally here. What we have found though is that the way in which the sandboxes are embraced by the regulator and I guess implemented by the regulator depends a lot on the regulator's view of its role. So, and James, I'll be very interested to hear what's happening in Mauritius in this respect, but in Australia, our regulator does not have an economic development mandate as part of their function. Contrary to Singapore, for example, where the financial services regulator very clearly has as part of its remit the promotion and encouragement of economic development in the financial services and other corporate sectors. In Australia, the sandbox concept has been fettered very significantly by the regulator's sort of core focus, which is consumer protection, which is what's led to really an almost total failure of our sandbox so far, which I can explore later. So I do have a question there because I find this fascinating as well in terms of studying other jurisdiction. Say if we did have an innovative ventures that we wanted to run through a sandbox in Australia, how long would it take for somebody to go through or is it, or is it case dependent, you know, so long as they had all the paperwork in place? Okay, so this is, this is the rub, right? The one innovative feature about our sandbox, which was my idea, is that it is in a sense an opt-in and that is that it's open to anybody. I mean, it was thought that it would be anyone who was an innovative business in financial services, but interestingly, that was not part of the initial definition. There were no eligibility criteria or very minimal eligibility criteria. It was almost assumed that people would know if they were eligible. So that in itself was quite sort of interesting. Um, My concept was, okay, if you're an innovative business and you need to start testing, you need to start testing now. You don't want to wait for some regulatory process that it could take you know any period of time because you need to be testing now. So the idea was that you would simply if you fulfilled the various criteria we suggested some to the government that we were initially dealing with if you fulfilled those criteria you could simply give a notice to the regulator that you wanted to operate in the sandbox and two weeks later you would be able to commence operation. We also said, of course, that if the regulator did not 
want you to or think you are appropriate, it could, within that two week period, it could say, no, you're not eligible and we don't think that you should operate in the sandbox. So it had a two week period to look at it. That wasn't necessarily thought to be because they were not eligible in terms of the type of business and what they were testing. It would really more be if ASIC detected that there was some sort of misconduct or failure to observe the regulatory requirements which would otherwise apply to that business. So that idea was adopted, which was fantastic. It's almost like a laissez-faire sort of approach where you have guidelines that you have to meet and that, um, you know, after that, you say that period of two weeks and if it wasn't, you know, an appropriate sort of business that they would basically get noticed, they couldn't continue under those present conditions, correct? Yes, that's absolutely right. Now, conceptually, that was absolutely world-beating. No one else has done it that way. And kind of, I can understand why, because it means, of course, that, anybody can self-nominate. So you would not be surprised to think that ASIC found that that might be a sort of a risky concept. So their method of controlling that was to limit the types of businesses who could operate in the sandbox to businesses that they felt would have limited risk, right? So the, the concept, which was a terrific one, came back to bite us because it meant that ASIC had no appetite for allowing anybody who had any risk associated with their business whatsoever um, to go into the sandbox. So this was incredibly frustrating, as you can imagine. The first draft of the, the consultation paper that ASIC put out didn't even allow credit businesses in, like even a mortgage broker, for example. And so we managed to do some lobbying with ASIC and Treasury, quite extensive lobbying, a couple of months before the sandbox paper was actually released. And we got it expanded a very small amount, but not sufficiently. So basically, the, as it currently operates, if you're a mortgage broker, or you're a digital advice business offering general advice on simple managed investment schemes and Australian shares. And simple managed investment schemes is an interesting concept because that's a very limited subset of investment schemes. It's like exchange traded funds. Then you can operate in our sandbox and you can only give general advice on those things. So that is so limited that when I did an analysis of the businesses that were accepted into the UK, the first UK sandbox, basically I think only two of those would have qualified in our sandbox. And when we did an analysis of the population of one of our larger accelerators, not accelerator, what, Hannah, what do we call Stone and Chalk? It's known as a fintech hub. Thank you, fintech hub, which has, you know, quite a impossible to not advised them on superannuation as well. So basically, no, almost no digital advice businesses, which was pretty much the only type of business which was permitted in the sandbox or eligible for the sandbox would have found the sandbox useful. So what's happened in Australia is that six months in, there is only one organisation in the sandbox. I'm not quite sure who it is. I mean, the reality is, I think that there, it was a complete failure of analysis on the part of ASIC. And, you know, it's just embarrassing. It's been, to be honest, I think very embarrassing for us. And I warned them that this would happen because they announced this, you know, world leading concept and it hasn't been world leading at all because it's been ineffective. So what has happened since then is that the government have not been particularly happy about this because they had hoped that it would be much more broadly based. And so Scott Morrison, our treasurer, and I sit on his advisory, FinTech advisory group, he announced in our budget in May that they would legislate an expansion of our sandbox. But I think in the fullness of time, you know, the good news is that 
hopefully the government now has a better understanding of the fact that it needs to be more broad in order to be effective. And where that will lead us, I don't know. I mean, it may be that they find some other way to impose controls, you know, because of course you have to balance consumer protection with encouragement of entrepreneurs. I mean, that's a given. And, and that's the challenge with this sort of opt-in system. So I'm wondering, before, Peter, you said that there was no chance that we would see a US regulatory sandbox. Why do you say that? So we have, in many ways, a different system here in the US. We have federalism, which means we have a lot of authority at the state level for regulation of financial services, in particular, money transmission businesses are primarily regulated at the state level. In addition to that, at the federal level, we have about eight or nine, depending on how you want to count, federal agencies that all have some piece of the financial services regulatory pie. They all do slightly different things, although they all have overlapping jurisdiction as well. So for example, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency in the Department of Treasury charters national banks. Now in the US, we also have state chartered banks. So several banks are actually regulated at the state level and not by the OCC in their charter at the federal level. Also a subdivision of treasury called FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And if you ever engaged in commodity derivatives, you'd have to worry about the CFTC, Commodities Futures Trading Commission. And if you ever dealt with any investment properties or securities issuance or anything like that, you'd have to worry about the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. On top of that, there's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. This is, oh, uh, we also regulate securities at the state level. We have so-called blue sky securities laws in addition to the SEC at the federal level. And at the same time, every one of the states where you have customers, the attorney general or the banking supervisor in that state could bring unfair and deceptive acts and practices. I'm probably missing some, even with that fairly broad tapestry of all of the several U.S. financial services regulators. And so here's what I'm driving at. At the end of the day, if you want to create a sandbox, like a place where it's safe for kids to play, you're going to need to get buy-in from 53 states and territories. And it's a big political fight to try and get all of them to all get on the same page and agree. The politically, you'd need a massive amount of capital. I mean, the, the bright spots here in the U.S. are a few things. As I said, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency has proposed a federal fintech charter for basically be a national bank, except you wouldn't necessarily be doing deposit taking or lending. You'd just be doing payments because that is considered one of the three core banking functions here in the U.S. Although the OCC is now being sued by the Conference of State Bank Supervisors, which is the trade association of state money transmission regulators and banking supervisors, because the CSBS says that the OCC doesn't have authority to do that. So we have a turf war already. So nobody's going to get a fintech charter anytime soon, I think even though the OCC says they're open for business. I hope that they are, and I hope that somebody does, but it's, it's hard. The other bright spot, to the extent there's a bright spot here, is a group of big tech companies in the US, Google, Apple, Microsoft, I believe Amazon, have formed an industry trade association called Financial Innovation Now. If you watch Seinfeld, it's like, serenity now! And the goal of that organization is to lobby the government for, you know, more favorable regulation for financial innovation, especially for, you know, Google's ability to do things that would otherwise be considered financial services or Amazon's ability to do these things. 
And they have asked Congress for a federal money transmission license, which would at least allow you to be a payments company and not go through the 50 state licensing process, actually 53 states and territories, and just get one license from, I guess, a new, a, a whole brand new division of Treasury, which would be set up to offer federal money transmission licensing. Hopefully they'd cooperate nicely with all the other divisions of Treasury and all the several other federal regulators. So at this point, I'm just rambling. Uh, but these are the problems. And they're sclerotic is a good word to describe our regulatory system here in the US. So what this sounds like is that in the US, there's a problem with both getting permission in the first place. And then even if you do get permission, you've got a massive surface of vulnerability, which can be exposed to trauma by these terrible, terrible regulators that we I mean, we find I mean all of the regulators are actually very nice. And you know, we've met with many of them and they're all trying to do the right thing. There's just too many of them. And that's not their fault. They are part of, you know, the OCC's been around since 1860 something. FinCEN's been around since this since the eighties, I believe. You know, the SEC's been around since nineteen thirty and the and we we respond to crises by creating new agencies. That's what we do here in the U.S. And we've had a bunch of crises and we have a bunch of agencies now and they're all trying to do the right thing, but it's hard to get them all to cooperate. So, yeah. So what about the Mauritius sandbox? How's your experience been over there? Actually, the Mauritian sandbox is a hell of a lot easier, I think, <laughs> to apply for than either Australia or anything here in the United States. So essentially, you've got some very basic guidelines, and it has to be approved by the Board of Investment. The application process is actually quite an easy one. I mean, there's three pages of you know business plan, risk analysis, warning, so on and so forth. And if it actually fits in with all those little boxes that you have to tick, then you can proceed to have a regulatory sandbox license. What that means is that there's a close monitoring by the Board of Investment during the operation of your license, and generally it would last about a year, but it can be extended depending on the stage of the business itself. There is no categories of businesses like in Australia, so to fit in in the fintech space, it's broadly innovation. In Mauritius, we have a head of innovation at the BOI, which makes things a hell of a lot easier. And also what happens is you start getting all those diverse types of innovation innovative solutions that want to set up there. The other thing that's interesting about Mauritius is they don't, I don't think they even understand what capital gains tax is because there's none. <laughs> and there's a, I think it's a 15% tax rate for the corporations, but we've got a, an offshore sector as well that's really vibrant and where the effective tax rate is between zero and 3%. So today Mauritius is the number one investor in India by funds because most of the money invested in India transits from Mauritius. So you've got this junction of of regulatory sandbox that if you have an innovative product or solution that allows you to obtain a license to start operating. You have the financial landscape that makes you a base to access Africa and India. And you've got the funding from various parts of the world in order to actually fund those ventures. So what, what it is, is most people don't really think about Mauritius about, you know, in terms of setting up their businesses there because it's got 1.3 million population, right? It's, it's quite insignificant. But what they do is they set up in Mauritius, much like a capital in Africa, where they manage all the operation from the Mauritian environment and invest or do business later on as a trampoline into Africa. The same thing exists for India as well. Mauritius is 70% Indian. And we do have a very good relationship with India, who often considers us a, a little brother. Um, so, so essentially, you've got all of these things 
things happening in the one region. And what Mauritius wants to do is to replicate some of the successes that has happened in Singapore, for example. So Mauritius is more closely related to Singapore than it would be to any other Caribbean islands um, as, as a way of thinking about it. So essentially, the sandbox started late last year and Mauritius has received a number of applications, um, some in the blockchain field. And right now, though I can't really disclose, they're looking at how to tackle under the regulatory sandbox, you know, the crowdfunding in the blockchain space. And they're considering this very actively right now because it's, it is an area for them that is really interesting as well as can benefit the country in the long term. The main issues are <laughs> how do we protect investors, KYC, AML, all of these things. And that's something that they're trying to resolve right now. So this is pretty interesting because there are these different types of states, essentially, have managed to come up with different flavors of solution to the same problem. But obviously, you've been far more successful than anyone else by the sounds of it. Yeah, we're trying. We don't know exactly what the future will hold, but we've made it as simple as possible, and especially in the blockchain space, because when I was there last year and dealing with the heads of state, we were looking at, okay, what are the problems we can help resolve? And that's when we came up with the three, right? Regulatory friction, commercialization and funding, right? So we have the regulatory sandbox now. So we're seeing some of the early stage of innovative companies coming through. The second part is how do we commercialize effectively? In Mauritius, we have what we call a smart city scheme where there's, I think about 10, don't quote me on that, but at least around 10 smart cities being built right now in Mauritius. So one of the thoughts is to actually provide proper tax breaks to the developers of these smart cities if they used innovative products and solutions that is readily available for commercialization, such as blockchain solutions. When we're talking about this at the moment, the second one is to create a sort of smart campus where we could overlay the sandbox regulatory license application on top of it, almost like an economic innovation zone, where the innovative companies could come in, especially in the blockchain space, to actually commercialize their product within that, that sort of garden, walled garden. And the reasons for it are sort of very simple, but also political. If we were to address the country as a whole, we would get stiff resistance from the established players. And I think this was recognized. If we tried to change the legislation, it would get stiff resistance as well. So what we said was, okay, let's just leave all of this aside and let's create this little campus where we can see and we can basically build some sort of a futuristic town and that people could look into and then replicate, right, in design in various jurisdictions. And that's the sort of angle that we're taking. And then the third part, which is the, the funding part, is one of the reasons why we're looking at an ICOs at the moment. I know I don't like this term, but you know that's what it's called, so we're going to call it that, right? Whatever. <laughs> so, so that's why we're looking at it and saying, what are the risks? Okay, so Mauritius worked really hard to clean up its game in terms of you know, being a tax haven, so now it is the number one place to do business in Africa. And they don't really want to attract the same thing again. So 
you know, KYC EML becomes extremely important. The second thing that becomes really important as well is what are the use of funds, right? Where is it coming from? Who are the financial institutions that will stand behind it? What does that network look like? And as I said, currently we have one in the works. The BOI hasn't decided on it, but we are starting to see some of the issues that will need to be addressed in that respect. And if we can get it right, then we can have a streamlined process from cradle to, not to great, but cradle to hopefully success, right, to actually get this through. If I can make an observation, what James has talked about and Peter is really interesting. It demonstrates the advantage that small countries have in innovation over large ones, just like small companies have them over large companies. Because, and, and New Zealand, Alexandra, is an even better example of this because in New Zealand, you don't have anywhere near the regulatory complexity that we have even in Australia. But, you know, it's, it's perfectly apparent that in the US, you know, because you haven't ceded power to a, the federal regulators as we have systematically here in Australia from our five or seven states and territories over a period of the last 15 years, you know, you're not in a position to actually collectively innovate at a regulatory level. We still have some constraints, which are a little bit to do with what I call regulatory timidity. But in a country like Mauritius, where it's an absolute economic imperative for the country and not a hugely rump of regulation that they've got to turn around, when you've got the will to do it, and we see this in Singapore as well, you can actually make change very, very quickly. So I love this inversion of the power base that's occurring in various countries. It's, it's a little bit like the same inversion that we're seeing technology create with companies like Uber and Airbnb and even WeChat because, you know, we're seeing small players who can be nimble, whether it be at a country level, regulatory level or business level, starting to overtake those who are not. So I find all this really fascinating from a kind of social policy perspective as well. Yeah. It's a little sad, but it's fascinating from, from my perspective as well. I, I think part of the reason why the U.S. was such a home for innovation in the early days of the Internet was because the one good thing we've got going for us is the Constitution, which is a very strong guarantor of free speech rights and, to some extent, privacy rights. And the early Internet was all about speech and, to some extent, about privacy. It wasn't about financial services. We have no amendment to our constitution that says you have a right to start consumer-facing financial services business without undue regulatory scrutiny. And so maybe we're no longer the right home for these things. It's actually interesting because I think it all comes down to sort of what are the drivers? Is it like a Mauritius, the commercialization? Is it a matter of making sure that the regulatory scheme works well and everything is robust and we take account of, say, the 53 organizations at the state level and then kind of all of the federal regulators that Peter, you mentioned, or in Australia, we've also got a quite an interesting system because from our federal government, we have this policy of innovation, which has been filtering down. And what, what we've seen in particular with the regulatory sandbox is unlike say Mauritius, the UK or Singapore, it's not about just kind of finding businesses that work and allowing the, the opportunities. It's actually about saying, well, what's the regulation and what needs to be tweaked? For them to, to test their ideas and so we're actually seeing it in a bit more of a piecemeal fashion so you've got things like the regulatory sandbox that we've spoken about you have potential changes to anti-money laundering legislation to facilitate blockchain-based businesses or at least certain businesses dealing with cryptocurrency 
We then have things like ASIC's Innovation Hub, which is supposed to be facilitating a dialogue between ASIC being out that securities regulator and the fintechs, and actually to date, that's been certainly more successful than the regulatory sandbox. I believe since it was created, there are something like 33 companies that have gone through that process and have been granted AFS cells, which is actually pretty good considering how rigorous that can be. Oh, and then of course, we've got the taxation of digital currencies, which is hopefully gonna go through on 1 July. So there'll be an open door there to remove double taxation. Effectively, what this shows, however, is we don't necessarily have one organization that's doing this, but it's underpinned by the one policy objective that's trickling down into these legislative regimes. And one of the things I find really interesting actually is say in the UK, in their first crop of companies that went through the regulatory sandbox, almost half of them were actually blockchain companies. Now in Australia, we don't look at the technology, whether it's blockchain or cryptocurrency, we look to how does that interact with our financial services regulation? What is the so-called financial product or financial service? And so whether or not it's underpinned by blockchain is neither here nor there. It's very much a policy and then regulation as opposed to an innovation commercialization. But of course it has that innovation bent underneath it. Yeah, from the US perspective, you know, maybe I overemphasize the constitution with the internet. What you are describing as far as this top-down, not top-down control from a regulatory standpoint to get everyone in line, but a culture at the top, a pro-innovation culture. We had that actually to some extent with the internet as well from the Clinton administration. There was a policy document that was put out by the Clinton administration, principles for the global information infrastructure, the GII. That didn't catch on. We called it internet. It was like a six principles, I think, for governance of the GII. And a lot of them were that the private sector should lead as much that can be resolved in private law, like civil law contracts and torts and things should dominate. And there shouldn't be command and control regulation if it can be solved in that civil law context. And these were very good policies and they did make a difference. So it wasn't just our reverence for free speech. I think it was also that initiative from the Clinton administration. Maybe we can hope for some similar initiative from the Trump administration or whoever's <laughs> next. I don't know, but we're badly in need of both that cultural message from the top and also to some extent we need someone who can sweep away some of the superfluous power that resides in the hands of hundreds, if not thousands of small tyrants. Interesting you make that comment about the Clinton administration because it was the Clinton administration that reclassified strong crypto as uh, commercial rather than a military technology. So, Yeah, there were a lot of pro-innovation policies that came out of Bill Clinton's administration. So uh, we can get nostalgic now. I, don't remember. I just like Jerry, our executive director, like tells me like, this was great. It was really important. I'm like, cool. <laughs> it's not going to happen again, is it? And he's like, maybe. And I'm like, okay, we'll try. <laughs> hey, Alex. So while you're listening to all of this, what are your thoughts for New Zealand? I mean, you know, let's get down to what really matters. In New Zealand, we don't have a regulatory sandbox. There's not even one contemplated, so we look very jealously at everybody else. But what is interesting is that, as Claire was saying, was you may have one, but it may not work in practice. But also, another point, I've said this before, in New Zealand, we are small, and so we should be able to buy rights, be nimble, but we're not. So in Australia, while they're bigger, more bureaucratic, you've got the states and the federal level, there's a willingness to engage 
And so far that hasn't happened in New Zealand, but I'm starting to see movements in that area. That, that's, uh, if, I, if I can just add a couple of things there about smaller countries. What we found is that when we started looking at Mauritius itself as a tech startup, then that's when things started changing, right? Because we don't have natural resources. We don't have oil, petrol, gold, so on and so forth, right? So we have to rely on, you know, tourism, textile, finance, and agriculture. Now, there's only so much you can innovate in that area. And Mauritius throughout since independence in 1968 from the British, it basically evolved in terms of innovation. They, they tried to do things to keep up with their, you know, growing their economy. Today, it is the, probably the number one or close to the number one richest country in Africa, GDP per capita, because of that culture of innovation. So when we came in with the innovation sandbox, we were looking at what were the disruptive technologies around the planet today and what time frame do we have to actually access this growth stage and we look very carefully at cryptocurrencies blockchain based application and we said okay so we think that there is about five years of the golden age left we can't stand and be here to learn and to do the educational programs the training so on and so forth what we need to do is to look at tech transfer and making the island suitable to attract those commercial product already and what happens in this process is that you've got innovators from around the world setting up over there and working with the local workforce and that rub of this innovative culture with the Mauritian workforce actually happens over time. And hopefully within two to three years, you have Mauritians themselves starting their new ventures, right? And that basically kickstart and takes advantage of that growth because we just do not have the time. We, it is a small country. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to transfer knowledge as quickly as we possibly can. And for this, that's why we have to go towards a commercialization stage rather than an incubation stage. We have to skip one step, get it ready, and try to commercialize certain projects and make it as attractive as possible. Dubai uses a slightly different thing in terms of the amount of money that they chuck at it. We don't have those same resources, so we have to play with something else. So what we do is we incentivize people by saying, hey, you come here and you'll have beautiful beaches, you have a Phoenix beer and you can work at the same time, right? <laughs> I thought that was important to mention because every single sandbox in terms of region has their own little nuances on the jurisdiction and the region that they're in. I mean, I'm pretty sure Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley because the weather in California is beautiful. And why would we not live there? I'm super jealous that I'm here in DC all the time in the swamp. I wanted to throw out a question to the group because we've been talking about sandboxes for what I presume to be companies that may or may not, but close fit into existing regulatory requirements because they tend to be, you know, in custody of the funds of consumers in some way or the valuables of consumers in some way. So they present this risk profile or they are, you know, creating some sort of highly speculative asset that customers might buy. So they should have very clear disclosures of what their fundamentals are of a prospectus and maybe only accredited investors should be able to buy it. You know, that's a whole another can of worms. But, you know, th that's one set of entities in our space. In our space, I mean, you know, blockchain, but specifically open blockchain, like cryptocurrencies and things like that. Those are companies that are either playing an exchange role, helping people obtain and then hold digital currency or digital assets and securing them on their behalf because they're not comfortable holding their own keys, basically, which is perfectly reasonable for most people. 
or they're companies that are building new digital assets, new bearer instruments, new tokens that will be useful in a certain way and selling them in mass to an interested public. That's one group of entities in our space. There's a whole other group of entities in our space, though, people who merely code software, whether it's, you can imagine a later day Satoshi who makes a new type of Bitcoin and doesn't actually accumulate the tokens themselves in order to sell them off, but just creates protocol software and gets that out into the public and creates a culture of maintaining that open source software. Or you can think of someone like blockchain.info who builds software wallets. They provide a consumer service in a way, but all they're providing to consumers is software that helps the consumer secure their own digital currency. So they're not what we traditionally consider a financial service. They're a technology company. They're not holding things for other people. Our best hope, I think, in the U.S. is to say, look, financial services regulation is hard in the U.S. because of this overlapping pattern of jurisdiction. But when you're not doing a financial service, when you're just writing software, or when you're just providing software as a service or service related to software, you're engaged in a speech activity, which is some ways protected by the First Amendment. You're engaged in an activity that you have a lot of protections because of the Communications Decency Act. You can't be sued for defamation, things like this. And, you know, the Digital Money and Copyright Act, you can't be sued for copyright infringement for the activities of your users. You're allowed to publish this software. You're allowed to do it. And you're allowed to do it in a fairly unfettered regulatory environment. I think those activities are actually highly innovative in this space. And in many ways, a lot of the movement of blockchain technology is this decision to say, let's disaggregate the intermediaries. Let's, I don't want to be a new intermediary in this space. I want to be someone who develops software. And that's the one thing I think America's got going for it is this culture of software development and the fact that that activity isn't generally regulated as something that we would call a financial service. Now, with the advent of Bitcoin, with the advent of Ethereum, suddenly software development, even if you're not holding other people's money, starts to look like a financial service in some ways because you provide a product that people use to secure their money and things like that, or you provide a product that people invest in because they're enthusiastic about it, but maybe naive. What we worry about a lot at Coin Center is even if it starts to look like a financial service, we shouldn't regulate it the same way we regulate legacy financial services. So in many cases where the person is just writing software, there needs to be a clearly defined safe harbor. So this is my very long-winded run up to, what about not sandboxes, but safe harbors, true safe harbors to say that you're just not regulated because what you're doing is not actually money transmission, is not actually securities issuance, is not actually deposit taking. So you're outside of financial regulation. It has to be narrowly cabined, of course, because we don't want people kind of making a bank but claiming that they're just writing software. But I think there are plenty of good faith innovators who really are just writing software. And if they get swept into the draconian or overzealous enforcement of financial services regulation, the loss of them is very bad for innovation. I'm curious if this is also a discussion that's happening in other countries. Yeah, what we're really talking about when we're looking at if it's a financial service or force within regulation is, is this something for which we need to protect consumers? is this something where we're exposing them to risk, which we wouldn't otherwise? And if it's something where someone owes a responsibility, does it come under that same premise of financial services? So it's really kind of what's the relationship between the developer, the product and the consumer? So for instance, if a developer is simply creating a protocol that someone else uses and it's that someone else who then owes the responsibility to the consumer, 
the developer should not necessarily get, depending on the case and the facts, have that same responsibility. But I think it comes down also to that idea of the facts because you may have two things which look similar on the face of them, but when you start to delve into the detail. Right, like blockchain.info and Coinbase as a hosted wallet, a consumer comes to their computer screen and they both hold their Bitcoins, but in very different ways, right? Exactly, and that's the whole point, is you need to look at this probably more so on a case-by-case basis. So that's when you kind of go, you look at the product, you examine, like, how does it work? What are the relationships? And if you think it's borderline, one of the other things that we've done here is you then go and approach the regulators. And I guess it comes back to that concept that I said in one of the previous podcasts that, well, we have a relationship with them here because there aren't as many and we're a smaller country. So you actually can go and say, look, this is what it is. This is what we think it should be. Let's talk through it and let's work out the best solution. And sometimes you may need to go down the regulatory path or get exemptions from that or opt into certain things. But it's a bit of a feeling your way through and working with the people who hold the keys to both that policy and the regulation to make sure that it's not just a case of, well, it's all software, so forget about it or well, it looks like a financial product or a security, so it has to be regulated. It's, it's working out that middle ground, but I mean, it's one of the things that people don't always like to hear, but this is when you need to see your lawyers. I absolutely agree with what Hannah said. And one of the great things that has happened here over the last two and a half years is ASIC is actually very willing to have those discussions with you. And once you have those discussions with ASIC, that facilitates the process of whether you need an exemption or whether you need a license and things can move quite quickly. My personal experience has been is that if businesses go down to see our regulator on their own, They don't necessarily get very far because the conversation tends to be fairly preliminary. Whereas if they go with, you know, somebody like Hannah or myself who can actually speak the language of the regulator, you can actually get a lot further quite quickly. And that's very useful. But the other really good purpose of this interaction that we have with the regulator, and I've been taking fintech businesses down there since sort of late 2014 when they first started to emerge, is that it's actually educating our regulator as well. Because they're on the front foot seeing what businesses are doing before the businesses are even starting to do it, they're starting to think about regulatory policy in terms of facilitating those businesses as opposed to waiting until something goes wrong and then having to bring down you know, the dead hand of kind of surveillance and enforcement on them where you're just starting from the wrong premise. And so that is one area where we're doing really well in Australia, I think, and I know other countries are doing it well too, but you know, it is something that's really working here. I think from our perspective as well, this is a very complex topic that actually merges in benefits of technology to complement certain regulatory aspects together. So you, you have to have some sort of need in terms of understanding the underlying technology as well. For example, are the miners that are transmitting UTXOs considered money <laughs> money exchanges, right? Is, is that the case? When FinCEN came out, I think a couple of years ago and issued their bit license proposal, they were thinking of Bitcoin more as assets that you basically own and transfer. Whereas, you know, what we know is that, you know, your wallet is a key chain, right? Right. So the keychain basically gives control 
for you to transfer from one end to the other, but the transmission itself is being done by the miners and the nodes around the system. So these sorts of things can lead in terms of regulation to some really interesting dilemmas because it's not the same sort of structure that we've been used to in the past. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is when you write a software and, and you, you put it out there and you're saying, okay, so the, the, the person that's using the software is actually the user, but what if the user is people at large? I mean, you can't, and, and they're, they're monitoring their own sort of access and transfers so on and so forth. So it becomes extremely complex to actually marry the technical abilities that the blockchain has together with the, with the regulations that we have today. So it has to sort of almost merge in a way that self-enforcing behaviors on the blockchain can actually also help regulation and regulation is there to guide it forward. I think that's right. And I do envy many of you for how centralized or small in number the people who you need to have a conversation with in order to get on the right side of these things might be. However, I really like bright line rules at the same time. This is not a bright line rule. This is a flexible standard that if you're rich enough and sophisticated enough and can call someone who's very talented like Hannah to help you navigate the halls of government, you can then maybe get the clarity you need to do the thing you wanna build. I, I think that works in many cases, but I'm wary of it at the same time because it does potentially exclude a number of people who are not well-financed or not well-versed in government from the innovation. And in many ways, the beauty of the internet was opening the floodgates of services on the internet to anybody who wanted to build something. And maybe they weren't sophisticated at first, but they were able to learn by doing because they weren't stopped at the gates before they were able to do something. So a bright line rule that I really like that we try and push at Coin Center a lot as far as just a way of understanding what things should be regulated generally and shouldn't be regulated generally is can you as a business, as a person, move other people's money for them. This has to leave aside the whole question of ICOs. That's different. But as far as any other financial service, are you custodial or are you really just building pipes? Are you just building the infrastructure that either people holding their own money, self-custodians will use, or people holding other people's money will use your pipes, but you're not holding the money, you're just the pipes. So James, when you bring up miners and FinCEN, yeah, it was complicated. And fortunately, FinCEN ended up on the right side of that in that they found that Miners were not custodial and were not money services businesses and did not need to register with FinCEN, although there's still some gray areas related to people who are selling on their own account. Um, but that's the bright line rule I'd like to draw. And to some extent, the emergence of the ICO phenomenon has given me some uh, heartache because this is a different consumer protection problem. And now this bright line needs to also have these other corollaries to it if you're selling these things that are highly speculative. But I think for the purposes of banking regulation, money transmission regulation, anti-money laundry and anti-terrorist financing regulation, for those three things, if you are holding other people's money, you're regulated. If you're just building software that people use to hold their own money or to put their own money through a decentralized system, you're not regulated. And if we could have that bright line rule, we reserve this massive space for people to build amazing financial tools without having to seek permission first. They'll still be subject to unfair and deceptive acts and practices. So they could be sued by the regulator afterwards for presenting a user interface that lied to consumers, to grandma, 
but they won't have to ask permission first. And I think that's hugely important. And that's why I really want to see these bright line safe harbors emerge. And if they can emerge in the US, that would be the one chance we have to actually have a leg up on other jurisdictions where you have the ability to have that conversation. If you don't have a bright line rule, you can at least have a conversation. It's not too cost prohibitive to have a conversation to find out which side of a flexible standard you're on. I think that's a really interesting concept, Peter. But if I was to put my crystal ball, you know, into this conversation, I would actually say that it's likely, certainly in Australia, that we'll have the opposite. I think that once the regulators and government, and they don't really know enough about this yet, but they realise just what is actually happening with ICOs and even just crypto purchasing, exchanging, trading, etc. All those activities will come quite quickly into the regulatory framework. At the moment, you know, we are doing exactly what Hannah said. We're doing these fairly esoteric analyses based on the individual circumstances of each, each business. But the reality is that with the emergence of so many different types of tokens, the fact that people are being encouraged to buy those tokens, there are various different services that are holding those tokens with different layers of security, that they do represent a form of investment or a form of money, which is at the moment also representing um, an investment because of the changes in the value. I actually think that we will relatively quickly see all of that brought within the regulatory framework rather than there be some sort of safe harbour. And unfortunately, if that happens here, and even say in the UK, it's likely to be, I would think, followed in the US as well. But the difficulty of getting consistent regulation in the US will be, you know, obviously of an order of magnitude much greater than it would be in our countries. But, you know, just looking at something like the civic token sale, you know, over the last two days, they raised 33 million tokens were sold. Very significant amount of money was raised. And I know that was an ICO, but that form of fundraising for companies just, it simply will not happen, can't happen in an unregulated environment, in my view, for very much longer. So, you know, that's the first thing. But second thing is, you know, I had a client approach me the other day saying, well, you know, I just want to create tokens, like new tokens, because you can kind of clone tokens. And, and I just want to put all these new tokens out there into the infrastructure and the ecosystem because, I, you know, they, people might pick them up and do things with them. Well, to me, that looks and feels like a Ponzi scheme. So, you know, this is the sort of thing that's kind of coming out. So that's why I think that the regulators will see some of this stuff starting to emerge quite quickly, that they're not currently regulating and start to think, well, maybe we're going to need to regulate it. Yeah, I mean, the, the distinction, and I'm not saying it's always the right distinction, and this is why ICOs and the phenomenon of people wanting to put a lot of money into them has given me heartache, but the distinction I would make in some cases is, look, in many cases, these new exotic technologies, digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, are commodities. They're amazing new digital commodities. It's like digital gold. It's digital file storage, if it's a token that represents your ability to actually access decentralized file storage. It's commoditized file storage. In those cases, we have a long history in the US and in most Anglo-Saxon nations. If you own a truckload of gold, you're not a regulated financial service. You're a guy who owns a truckload of gold. If you want to sell a truckload of gold to another guy, you're two guys selling gold to each other, you're not a financial service. 
Some of them are, this thing gives you a right to our stream of profits. Now that's a security. But some of these other things are, we invented this new commodity. It's a commodity that entitles you to store things on the internet. Just like uh, having a commodity diamond entitles you to make decorative objects or to make uh, scientific instrumentation. And if it's really a commodity, then it shouldn't be regulated from a financial services standpoint. It's property. It's something that people own as individuals. They might have people hold that for them uh, as custodians or as fiduciaries, and those are financial services companies or their fiduciaries of some sort and should be regulated. But if you hold it as an individual or if you invent it, like you dug it out of the earth and sold it to somebody else, you're not a financial service either in that case. But this is a hard line to draw, and the ICO bubble has made it even harder to draw. Even harder. That's right, especially when people are speculating on that commodity as well, and they get into the space because they have an expectation of profit, right? <laughs> they, they buy. It's almost like they're buying into this, seeing a 10x return, and therefore itself it becomes an investment vehicle for them. It's something very concerning, which is one of the reasons why we're looking at this as to how can we do this in a way that is that we can protect consumers, that we can understand who is participating in these things and not such that, you know, you're commingling your assets with ISIS, for example, right? Because we don't know, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's one of the big things out there right now. And essentially, if you're, you know, for example, in vault markets, where we're building this trading platform, regulated, we've got some good partners. And ultimately, one of the questions is, if you are thinking about doing an ICO, how do I make sure that the people that I commingle my assets with and use on top of the protocol aren't doing something illegal? or illegitimate, right? And, and that's a big problem. It's a very complex thing to address. But if they're, if they're diamonds, then we accept that. There are blood diamonds in circulation. There are clean diamonds in circulation. If you've got a diamond and you don't know the provenance, you're not on the hook for liability. In a common enterprise where there is investment and everyone maybe is even treated as a general partner because there was no official legal document immortalized the cooperation between all the participants, in other words, the DAO, you are liable, personally liable for anybody else who is a co-ownership stake. And that's a mess. So, From my perspective, I think the key problem that we have is because I agree with what you say, Peter, about, you know, the concept of crypto, the old Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin generally, actually, and, you know, maybe the initial releases of Ether, for example, as being a commodity, I completely agree. And there's a lot of altcoin out there that is, is purely a commodity. I, I totally agree. The difficulty, though, is what's today's commodity can be tomorrow's security. And it's when it makes that transition, right? And this is where crypto is so different to any other commodity because it can transfigure itself. So we haven't really thought about that. You know, maybe that's the point at which the regulation starts to kick in, right? The challenge for that is, gosh, when does that happen? You know, on what point in the spectrum is that going to occur? And I think one thing is for sure, no regulators are thinking about this yet. Well, certainly I don't think ours are because this is so new. You know, it's really only in the last couple of months that this is really emerging as a kind of key factor. That's, I guess, my concern is the level of uncertainty around this for people who are going to be participating in the crypto market, whether it be as a commodity or at the point at which it morphs into some other form of instrument, you know, being a security or something we haven't even thought of yet, which, you know, is bound to occur. Yeah. And, and I would only add that I think some of our regulators are thinking about this, actually. <laughs> Just... mm -hmm.
very exciting. I think there's a lot of people around the planet thinking about exactly the same thing and scratching their heads right now. We are also starting to see this in terms of corporate structures as well, you know, having the non-profit there to look after the protocol level and then having the for-profit that builds on top of the protocol level. It sorts of find its own innovative ways of actually how to deal with the current legislative environment with this new product, but it's still, <laughs> I think it's still left to be seen how this all uh, shapes out. You've been listening to the Ether Review. I'm Arthur Falls. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit etherreview.info.